Live from the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Zane Asher, and here is what you need to know. Face value, Facebook finally announces its own cryptocurrency, and Trump takes on Mario D. The president lashes out at the ECB chief for hinting at more stimulus and robbing the poor to feed the rich. Democrats bash Amazon for paying its workers starvation wages. It is Tuesday, and this is your first move. And this is First Move. Let's begin with a quick check of the markets. Let's take a look here on Wall Street. U.S. stocks look set for a solidly uh, higher open. There we have it. Dow futures up about half percent or so as the U.S. Federal Reserve begins its two-day policy meeting, its June meeting in Washington. Nasdaq futures are up uh, about one percent or so right now. Every Fed meeting is important, but let me tell you, this one even more so. The central bank's policy statement out tomorrow could signal that it's open to cutting interest rates to help protect against a trade-related downturn. And as the Fed debate uh, debates new stimulus, ECB head Mario Draghi said today that he's ready to put more firepower to work to support the sluggish Eurozone economy. He says additional stimulus will be required if there's no pickup in growth or inflation. The news has certainly helped triggering a big rally when it comes to European stocks. There we have it green across the board there. You see the FTSE 100 up about 1% uh, or so. French and Italian stocks up over 1.5% there. But the euro has fallen sharply right now. It's down uh, by about uh, a quarter of a percent against the dollar. And that has triggered an angry tweet from U.S. President Donald Trump. And he says, quote, Mario Draghi, this is his tweet, Mario Draghi just announced more stimulus could come, which immediately dropped the euro against the dollar, making it unfairly easier for them to compete against the USA. They've been getting away with this for years, along with China and others. More on this in just a moment. But first, uh, our main driver, and that is Facebook's cryptocurrency. Facebook wants to befriend your wallet. The social media giant is launching a cryptocurrency and naming it Libra. CEO Mark Zuckerberg says he wants to make sending money as easy as sending a photo. Claire Sebastian is joining us live now. So Claire, just walk us through. I mean, this is obviously comes at a tricky time for Facebook when it comes to all of the sort of privacy and security concerns. Walk us through why Facebook is choosing to launch a cryptocurrency now. Yeah, Zane, so this is uh, quite a lot of detail that we've got from Facebook today. They've launched a white paper. They say that the actual launch uh, of this cryptocurrency will be in the, the first half of next year. Uh, but I want to just walk you through because it is a lot to take in. What they've announced today uh, is, first of all, this cryptocurrency. It's called Libra. This will be uh, a global cryptocurrency. They say it'll be built on a new blockchain. And it won't be run just by Facebook. It'll be run by the, the 28 founding members of this, including Facebook. That includes companies like Visa, like PayPal, companies like Uber and Lyft uh, and Spotify who will eventually uh, accept the Libra currency and that will be run uh, by an association based in Geneva, Switzerland. So very much in the spirit uh, of the whole blockchain idea uh, which is decentralized power. Uh, but on top of that, Facebook has also launched uh, a new subsidiary of its own company called Calibra. Now Calibra's first product will be a digital wallet uh, that will, will allow users to transact uh, in the Libra currency. They say it will be it will be integrated with its messenger apps, WhatsApp and Facebook Messenger, and it will allow people to send, uh, you know, essentially Libra 
coins as easily as they send emojis and, uh, and messages and photos uh, and things like that. And Facebook says that it's trying to solve a, a problem here. It says that 1.7 billion adults around the world uh, are still unbanked, don't have access to traditional financial institutions, uh, and this will help them gain access. But of course, uh, you know, it does, it does also help Facebook, who is looking to expand uh, into new markets and to build user engagement. But Claire, the cryptocurrency field is already relatively crowded. I mean, you've got Ethereum, you've got Bitcoin, Litecoin. I mean, you've covered this a bunch. I mean, why would users specifically pick Libra? So Libra is actually a little bit different uh, from those cryptocurrencies that you just mentioned because it's, it's what's called a stable coin. It's not uh, based on supply demand. That's not how the value will be set, unlike something like Bitcoin, which is, of course, highly volatile, highly speculative. Libra is going to be backed by a basket of, uh, of assets, essentially. The, uh, Facebook says they will be low volatility assets like bank deposits, like government uh, treasuries and things like that. And those will be uh, built into a reserve that will be run by the Libra Association based in Geneva, Switzerland. So as such, uh, it will be, a, uh, they say, a, a low volatility, relatively stable store of value. So it is a little bit different uh, from, from other, other cryptocurrencies and, and they hope that will, will build trust into the system and lead people to use it uh, as, as a stable store of value and, and as a currency. All right, Claire Sebastian, live for us there. Thank you so much, appreciate that. Uh, and a quick programming note for all of you. The co-creator of Libra, David Marcus, is going to be live uh, in a few hours from now on Quest Means Business. Uh, that is 8 p.m. London time, 4 a.m. if you happen to be watching from Hong Kong. President Trump is bashing Mario Draghi after the head of the European Central Bank signaled that more stimulus could indeed be coming if Europe's economy doesn't improve. Anna Stewart is joining us live now. Uh, so, Anna, I mean, obviously the markets uh, in Europe reacted heavily to uh, Mario Draghi's comments. Just walk us through specifically what he said. Yeah, essentially, the ECB stands ready for a fresh round of stimulus, whether that's in the form of rate cuts or asset purchases. And this is if the inflation outlook doesn't improve. And frankly, the climate doesn't look good. We've got weak economic growth across the region and, of course, loads of political uncertainty. So Mario Draghi used the annual ECB meeting to deliver this speech. And given that he's stepping down in four months' time, it both felt like a legacy speech where he really defended his QE legacy over the last few years, but also to reassure investors that there's still ammunition left at the ECB. Take a listen to what he said. If the crisis has shown anything, it is that we will use all the flexibility within our mandate to fulfill our mandate. And we will do so again to answer any challenges to price stability in the future. Now, as you saw, European equity markets rose all around 1% to 2% higher. Euro fell 20 basis points against the dollar. And my goodness, bond yields fell. In fact, the German 10-year fell to a fresh low. It was already in negative territory zone, down to minus 0.3% earlier today. Now, while we're seeing market reaction, I have to say a lot of economists are pretty sceptical about whether fresh stimulus would actually be effective this time around, given that you know rates are already at record lows, given that the ECB has already over five trillion dollars worth of bonds on its balance sheet. Zane? So um, with uh, Mario Draghi talking about potentially adding more stimulus, Donald Trump is reacting. The US president actually tweeted about this. He's not happy. Just walk us through uh, what the US president had to say. Yes, yeah, so we saw European equity markets 
fairly positive, less so from the US president. I'll bring you that tweet that he had earlier, and this was in the early hours of stateside. Mario Draghi just announced more stimulus could come, which immediately dropped the euro against the dollar, making it unfairly easier for them to compete against the USA. They have been getting away with this for years, along with China and others. And actually, after that, he also tweeted again, referring to the ECB president as Mario D, which is a new nickname for the man that we usually uh, know <laughs> as Super Mario. Um, but I would say, of course, the context of this is hugely important because this comes at the beginning of the Fed's two-day meeting. President Trump would love to see a rate cut stateside and they don't expect that to happen. Same. All right, Anna Stewart, life was there. Thank you so much. Appreciate that. Piling on pressure and ratcheting up tensions, the U.S. is sending a thousand extra troops to the Middle East after releasing photos it claims prove Iran attacked two tankers in the Gulf of Oman. Tehran, meanwhile, is vowing to increase its stockpile of uranium. Fred Plotkin is in Tehran. He joins us live now. Uh, so, Fred, let's just talk about this move uh, by the U.S. to send a thousand additional troops. Um, this is clearly a yeah. defensive move. Just, just tell us a bit more about these extra troops. Hi, mm. Well, uh, the U.S. says it's a defensive move and that these uh, troops are apparently going to be intelligence gathering to try and see uh, what the Iranians uh, are doing here and to try and prevent any sort of threat uh, to American interests, as uh, the military has put it, uh, in the uh, Persian Gulf region, of course, but then also uh, in the greater Middle Eastern region as well. The Iranians, of course, view all this a little bit differently. They see this as an offensive move. They obviously see this as an increased threat to themselves. It was quite interesting because there have been some senior Iranian generals who have come out and commented on this. Uh, one from the uh, Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps came out and said that U.S. troops uh, in the Middle Eastern region could not be a threat to Iran because of the heightened state of alertness of Iran's military and also uh, of the heightened strength of Iran's military. But there was also another quote which I found really interesting, which was, was uh, from the head uh, of Iran's general staff who came out uh, actually yesterday, but also referring to some of these new troops uh, from the U.S. Uh, in the uh, greater Middle Eastern region. He said that the Iranian military is very closely watching what, as he calls it, the enemy, obviously, uh, meaning the United States, is doing in the region. And if the enemy, as he says, makes a move, then the Iranians will have, as he puts it, a crushing response. And he said, this is the most interesting part, I think, um, that that would be in a very broad area, a very broad region. And of course, saying one of the things that the Iranians have consistently been saying is that if there is an escalation uh, between themselves and the United States, if it does come, uh, God forbid, to some sort of shooting war, shooting battle between these two, that uh, Iran would not only utilize its regular military, but certainly also the many proxy forces that it also has here in uh, in the region. So a clear warning coming to the United States uh, that the Iranians are not backing down. Some pretty clear statements also um, in answer to the Americans adding those 1,000 additional troops here to the region, Zane. Uh, Fred, it's interesting because in this sort of game of retaliatory chess, you have both sides saying that they clearly don't want yeah. war, but at the same time, both sides seem to continue to escalate things. Hmm. Yeah, and both sides uh, essentially seemingly waiting for the other side to back down. One of the interesting things, though, that I, I think that we've seen is um, is that both the Iranians, uh, or, or let's say the Iranians don't believe, they say, that President Trump actually wants war. They think that there are people in Trump administration who do want war, uh, like, for instance, National Security Advisor John Bolton. That's the assessment of the Iranians. Um, but they believe fundamentally that President Trump doesn't. Now, they also say, look, there is still a very, very big threat that the two countries could stumble into war. But at the same time, here in Iran also, you do have some 
uh, first and foremost military members who have some pretty bellicose talk, but then you, for instance, also have the Iranian president who came out earlier today and fundamentally said that Iran does not want and will not go into any sort of armed conflict with any nation. He was saying that he believes the reason why there's these difficulties with the U.S. right now is because Iran is dealing with, as he puts it, uh, people with very little political experience in Washington, D.C. So you can see there's a little more moderate talk here on the Iranian side as well. And of course, that's what many people internationally hope will, in effect, prevail both in Washington and Iran, uh, that uh, all of this de-escalates rather than further does escalate, Zane. All right, Fred Plague and live for us in Tehran. Thank you so much. Okay, so these are the stories that are making headlines around the world. Protest leaders in Hong Kong say they reject Carrie Lam's latest apology. Earlier today, the chief executive said she was sincerely sorry and that she had heard demonstrators loud and clear. But she stopped short of scrapping the controversial extradition bill that sparked protests in the first place. I personally had to shoulder much of the responsibility. This has led to controversies, disputes, and anxieties in society. For this, I offer my most sincere apology to all people of Hong Kong. Former Egyptian President Mohamed Morsi has been buried alongside other senior figures of the Muslim Brotherhood. According to his wife, he died after collapsing in a Cairo court on Monday. State-run media said it was a heart attack. Morsi came to power as the first democratically elected leader after the 2011 Arab Spring, was ousted in a coup in 2013. And French football legend and former head of European football's governing body, uh, UEFA, Michel Platini, has been detained in France. It comes as prosecutors investigate suspected corruption in the process of awarding the 2022 World Cup the Gulf state of Qatar. Latini, meanwhile, is saying that he's innocent. Let's bring in uh, World Sports' Alex Thomas, who's joining us live now from London. Um, so just, I mean, walk us through this. I mean, he has been brought in for questioning. What specifically do authorities want to know right now? Yeah, that's the detail that we're not quite sure at. We know that the National Financial Prosecutor's Office that specialise in economic crimes and corruption cases have had a probe ongoing since 2016 looking into the award of the FIFA World Cup to Qatar in 2022. That decision made back in 2010, hugely controversial at the time. And since then, many of the FIFA officials that made that decision have, you know, fallen by the wayside, disgraced in a huge, you know, sweep through the corridors of power at FIFA. There's a whole new regime in charge ever since those uh, raids on the FIFA hotel back in 2015. Platini, one of the people caught up in that, currently serving a lifetime, not a lifetime ban, currently serving a ban from all football-related activity for four years. That ends in October. Although it was over a payment separately to the investigation over the awarding of the World Cup to Qatar. Very complex, lots of layers. Uh, the French investigation, just one uh, of the global ones ongoing. There's another in Switzerland. There's also another still ongoing by the U.S. Department of Justice. We know that, uh, you know, in the last hour or so, Platini's lawyer has released a statement saying that his client is innocent. Uh, that it's definitely not an arrest as such. He's just gone in to help with questioning in relation to this matter. Um, and we think some of the details probably to do with this meeting between Platini and the former French president, Nicolas Sarkozy. We know a former Sarkozy aide is one of those also being questioned as well. Just as to how much there was sort of a, a grace and favour deal possibly between France and Qatar in the run-up to that vote back in 2010. Nothing's ever improved. There was a whole Gar Michael Garcia report that FIFA commissioned uh, a few years back 
that uh, showed there was no wrongdoing by the Russia or Qatar. But as I said, there's still other criminal investigations ongoing around the world. Uh, and it seems that, well, we'd all forgotten about it to some extent, that Platini's questioning today has just sort of lifted the lid once more on, on that whole saga. And, and so, Alex, you know, there have been, obviously, there has been so much controversy around uh, the World Cup being held in Qatar in 2022. I mean, is that going to continue as scheduled, do you think? Yeah, I can't see any way now the World Cup be taken away from that country after so many allegations thrown at it. Uh, and they've come away every time with the reason to keep going. Uh, it'd be very strange for it to be taken away now. Something sensational would have to happen. Any sort of paper trail, if any of these allegations were true, Qatar have always denied any wrongdoing. Uh, there's no paper trail has come to light so far, and there's been so many people working on it. Um, it would be strange. But, you know, uh, it shows that the people haven't given up on the case yet, that many prosecutors are looking into it. Uh, and as you know, as well as I do, that when it comes to financial crimes, uh, getting to that paper trail is increasingly different in the, uh, the modern uh, technological world that we live in. You bring up a very good point. Alex Thomas, live for us there. Thank you so much. Appreciate that. All right, a lot more to come here on First Move. A bidding war of cosmic proportions. Star Wars director J.J. Abrams closes in on a deal for his production company and taking to the skies. Airbus lifts off at the Paris Air Show. You're watching CNN. Welcome back, everybody. We just have some breaking news uh, into CNN. A tsunami advisory has just been issued in Japan. A tsunami advisory has just been issued in Japan. I want to bring in Alison Chincha, who joins us live now. So, Alison, what more do we know? Yeah, so they want you to understand that there is a difference between a tsunami advisory and a tsunami warning. A tsunami advisory is going to be one meter or less of additional wave height, whereas a warning would be slightly higher. So we're not expecting huge wave crests with this particular earthquake. This right here, where this red dot is, that is the epicenter. It was a 6.4 magnitude earthquake, relatively shallow at about 16.1 kilometers deep. However, because it was centered right over the water, that's where the tsunami concern comes from. That's why they have issued that advisory again noting that that is likely going to see wave heights and increase by maybe at most one meter that would be at most here again you can see about 6.4 this on the northwestern portion of japan that 6.4 magnitude quake at a depth of 16.1 kilometers deep um, most of the shaking reporting that we're hearing from around this area is relatively light you've got your light sh uh, shaking in some areas things rattling around inside of homes but so far as of yet we have not heard of any major damage from this particular earthquake again this happened just moments ago this is still brand new. We're still collecting a lot of that information. But again, this was a 6.4 magnitude earthquake on the northwestern coastline of Japan at a depth of about 16.1 kilometers. And Zane, we do have that tsunami advisory in effect for additional wave heights of one or one meter or less. All right, uh, Alison Chinchar, keep us posted. Thank you so much. Appreciate that. Okay, so this just in, U.S. President Donald Trump is confirming that he will meet with Chinese President Xi Jinping next week at the G20 summit. Presumably, the two have a lot to talk about, especially when it comes to trade. Trump says, quote, I had a very good telephone conversation with President Xi of China. We will be having an extended meeting next week at the G20 in Japan. Our respective teams will begin talks prior to our meeting. So President Trump will be meeting with Xi Jinping at the G20 summit uh, next week. U.S. stocks are adding to their gains right now. You see the Dow Jones up there, up about one and a third percent there. 
uh, the S&P 500 up about a one and a quarter percent. All right, on to our final, but actually very important story. Everybody has baggage. Events and people shape our lives and, of course, how we see the world. That baggage becomes our motivator, whether we've unpacked it or not. Most high achievers are there for a reason. Something drove them to the top. If you're a high achiever, it is likely that something has really motivated you and driven you to get to the top. But when at the top, many find themselves unequipped to be a good leader because of that very motivator that got them there in the first place. Uh, Bring in the man dubbed the CEO whisperer. Jerry Colliner is a CEO and co-founder of Reboot.io, an executive coaching program. He's a former venture capitalist as well, and he's uh, the author of Reboot, Leadership and the Art of Growing Up. Uh, Jerry, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. So it is true that a lot of people say that it's a saying in the sports world that champions are born through trauma. Would you agree with that and why? I think that um, trauma and challenges in our childhood in particular, trauma is a big word, but challenges in our childhood in particular create a sense of resiliency. It created an opportunity for resiliency and the ability to withstand the normal ups and downs of everyday life, especially those in leadership. Okay, so um, you're saying in this book that essentially, if you have been driven to get to the top, if you are somebody who is very ambitious, it is likely that you got there for a reason. But it's interesting, the very factors that enables you to succeed might actually be holding you back when it comes to leadership. Just That's walk us through exactly that. Right. That's exactly right. And what happens is, a lot of times uh, when we're children, we develop these childhood survival strategies. We, we develop the capacity to withstand the things that happen to us. And those things compel us. They compel us to do well in school. They compel us to leadership positions early on in our life. Eventually, though, and somewhere around our 30s, we start to run out of gas. And we start to run in, into them. They start to become impediments, not only to our own leadership, but actually to our happiness. I mean, it's, it's, it's the reason why the kids who are bullied at school are the ones who end up becoming CEOs. It's exactly. sort of like, you know, I'm going to show you uh, type thing. Um, so why is it that oftentimes a lot of what makes us ambitious and um, aggressive in terms of making it to the top also bring out the worst in us? Well, you know, I'm a huge fan of Marvel's superheroes, so shout out to Marvel. And one of the things that they've taught us is that every superpower has a dark side. And so what I often teach is that what you want to do is bring out the positive aspects of that, say, ambition, while understanding and dialing down the more negative aspects of it. Okay. So how do you do that? Well, part of it is this whole process of what I refer to as radical self-inquiry, mm-hmm. which is the ability to sort of look deeply within yourself and ask yourself honest questions like, what's really motivating me here and what am I truly afraid of and is it really a threat? And one question that you asked that my, my producer, Molly, loves your book, by the way, she's obsessed Thank with it, her and I were talking on the phone this morning, and she was saying that one thing you said that really got her thinking is, what is being said that is not being said? What needs to be said that is not being said? That's right. And, and I personalize it in the sense of what am I not saying that needs to be said? And that's really powerful because we walk around not saying the things that really motivate us all the time. There are corollary questions to that, such as, what am I saying that's not being heard? what's being said that I'm not hearing. That's very interesting. So how important is vulnerability? Because I think, um, you know, a lot of people think that in order to be a leader, you kind of have to close yourself off and be sort of very aloof and distant in order to gain that respect. Everybody talks about, oh, you know, vulnerability is very important. But 
Is there such a thing as being too vulnerable? Because, sure. Yeah. Sure. There is a there there is such a thing as being quote too vulnerable. And if if in my vulnerability, what I'm asking you to do is to carry my feelings. Okay. And I so see. I like to make a distinction here. It's not about being vulnerable for vulnerable's sake. It's about being real. Okay. So, and, okay. and so when a leader is actually not real, okay. they actually instill distrust. So is it a sort of calculated vulnerability? No, that's the wrong word. That's the wrong, it shouldn't, yeah. I shouldn't say calculated, right? Yeah, no, it's it's not calculated. It's controlled it's, vulnerability. It's understandable. It's an adult responsibility. It's not, oh my God, I'm freaking out. It's, hey, okay. I'm scared, but I still believe in what we're trying to do. Okay, well, I'm going to definitely read this book. It's called Reboot by Jerry Cloner. Thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate that. All right, that is, is it for us. Thank you so much for watching. I'm Zane Asher, International Desk with Christina McFarlane. It's up next. You're watching CNN. On the first day of the Paris air show, Boeing rival Airbus piled on the pressure by launching a new plane and announcing a hundred new orders. Meanwhile, Boeing was once again on the defensive, apologizing for the two deadly crashes and promising a return to service on the 737 MAX at some point soon. On day two, Boeing is announcing a big order. Uh, Melissa Bell joins us live now. So, Melissa, just walk us through, just with these two rivals, Airbus and Boeing, how is Airbus sort of swooping in to pick up orders that essentially would have been Boeing's? In fact, exactly, that is exactly what's been happening here, Zane, uh, at this Paris air show. Traditionally, uh, the opportunity for these two giants to go head to head and compare how many orders they're able to get. Yesterday, Airbus got 100 orders. Boeing uh, announced none at all, and it was all about expressing uh, the leaders of Boeing, expressing their contrition and their determination to fix these safety issues. Because, of course, bear in mind, Zane, that in the wake of those crashes, the one in October back in Indonesia uh, and the one in March in Ethiopia that both involved that 737 MAX, they have to get out of the immediate problem of getting that plane recertified, getting it back off the ground. And then, of course, there's a question of the confidence in the company itself. So good news for Boeing today. It has announced that it sold 30 of its 787 Dreamliners, this time to Korean Air, but still far behind Airbus, which is really exploiting uh, this current weak position in which Boeing finds itself with the announcement beyond those 100 orders yesterday of 30 further orders uh, to Saudi Arabian Airlines today and another 30, crucially, to Pacific, uh, the Filipino, I'm sorry, Cebu Pacific, including an order for those new aircraft that you mentioned. And I think that's uh, the crucial point to be made here at this air show, is that Airbus are really exploiting that moment of weakness of its rival uh, by announcing this new A321XLR. And the idea is that Boeing had been going to look ahead to 2025, investing some $15 billion in a new aircraft that was going to be designed exactly along these lines, a single aisle, longer haul uh, version, Airbus really pipping them at the post. And again, using this crucial fact that while Boeing is busy dealing with the fallout of all these issues, Airbus can power ahead and develop airplanes that are going to be uh, up and running and deliverable even before Boeing has a time to crack on with what it, it had planned to do previously. Zane. Isabel, live for us. Thank you so much. Appreciate that. All right, let's come right back down to earth now. And in India, millions of farmers subsist on small plots of land of one acre or less. Many of them rely on water that they have to haul out of the ground using diesel or kerosene-driven pumps, which are expensive and dirty. CNN's John Defterios has been finding out about a sun-powered alternative promoted by a startup called Cathworks. Take a look.
edition of the Global Energy Challenge, we're in India, focusing on a small-scale solar project out to boost productivity for rural farmers. For farmers to maximize their capacity to earn a living, water is crucial. Right now, rural farmers rely on expensive diesel pumps. But MIT graduates behind company Pathworks have engineered a solar solution here in Pune, India. How did the idea of a, a solar-driven pumping system actually come to the fore? People are saying we need to irrigate year-round and we can't afford to do it with diesel fuel or kerosene fuel. At the core of what Kethworks is all about, what would you say is the primary motivation of what you're trying to do here? Our number one motive is simply to enable smallholder farmers to grow more, earn more, and provide more for their families and their communities. This place looks good. Yeah, this should be good. Let's fix it here. We can get the pump and connect it. Yep. All right. This solar pump is small, clean, and easier to install. Retail costs, about $540. Cathworks and the NGOs they partner with want to help farmers microfinance the equipment over time. Is it time to think differently and get away from diesel and kerosene? If they are using diesel and kerosene pump, then it is worst. It's era of solar and renewable energies. It's a sustainable way uh, for the farming. Uh, it's a one-time cost, uh, and there is no maintenance uh, occurs in the solar pump, basically. Kethwork says if successful in India, it's ready to leapfrog into eastern Africa, where the technology is also needed. We'll have more of First Move after this. in the air that very enthusiastic round of applause uh, indicating the opening bell welcome back to first move i am zane ash the opening bell ringing 9 30 this morning on wall street we have got a high open across the board for u.s stocks Let, let's put the numbers for you the dow it's about half a percent now or so the dow is also in a bit of a wait and see approach as we wait to hear from uh the u.s federal reserve that's meeting today and tomorrow but there's also been some comments from Mario Draghi, the head of the ECB, that's pushing European stocks higher. He's intimated that he will uh, he will support the European economy if needed with extra stimulus measures. The euro has fallen sharply on the news, triggering an angry response from President Trump, who actually said in a tweet that weak, a weak euro unfairly makes Europe more competitive against the United States. The global movers, Facebook. Facebook is, let's see, Facebook is up uh, ever so slightly. They announced they're going to be launching a cryptocurrency called Libra. They're moving it into international payments and e-commerce. Also, Beyond Meat up again ever so slightly to just under uh, $200 a share, $107 a share. Uh, it went public, by the way, at $25 a share. So it's, it's really had, uh, it's really been rallying quite significantly. On Monday, it announced its latest product, a ground beef substitute. And there at the bottom of your screen, Blue Apron is also up as well. The meal kit company's reverse stock split came into effect, designed to preserve its uh, NYSE listing. Rules require listed codes to companies to have share price of no less than a dollar. All right, uh, on to another story that we are following just wrong. Amazon is fighting back against claims 
that it pays its warehouse staff starvation wages. New York Democratic Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, or AOC, told ABC News that low workers have actually, low workers and their low pay have actually helped make Jeff Bezos the world's richest man. But Amazon says that's simply not true. Had us Gold joins us live now. So, Hadas, who is actually in the right here? Because Amazon has actually come out and said, listen, we actually pay a minimum wage of $15 an hour, which, you know, we don't have to. We, we pay that because we want to. Um, who is in the right here? Well, Zane, this was a really interesting back and forth that developed, and Amazon has been the target of several politicians from all sides of the aisle, especially some presidential candidates. But what happened, as he said, was Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, congresswoman from New York, went on a Sunday, Sunday political talk show on ABC and said that Bezos, is being a billionaire, is predicated on paying people starvation wages. Now, Amazon hit back at them. They wrote in a tweet, AOC is just wrong. Amazon is a leader on pay at $15 minimum wage and full benefits from day one. We also lobby to raise the federal minimum wage. Now, AOC responded back again and saying, if a person is working 40 hours a week and is paid so little that they need government help to make ends meet, it's not the person that's weighed on our system, it's the company. Now, it is true that last year, Amazon did increase their minimum wage to $15 an hour after several years of criticism. And after actually Senator Sanders had introduced a bill called the Stop Bezos Act that would have forced companies like Amazon to cover any sort of government assistance benefits that their workers need to get. Now, there have been some reports that there are a certain percentage of Amazon workers who have to have uh, federal assistance programs to help supplement their wages. But Amazon did, as I said, increase their minimum wage and they have said they've been lobbying for it. Although it's interesting because some economists say that retailers have little choice but to increase their wages now because of the of the workplace market and how hard it is to find qualified workers but there's other problems that Amazon has when it comes to their workforce that have now actually been pushing to unionize they say it's not just the wages it's also the conditions that they're in some Amazon workers have said that in their warehouses they're put on really super high standards in terms of how quickly they pick out products and put them into those boxes that we all receive. They say that these are such high standards that they sometimes don't feel as though they can take any breaks. They call some sometimes the conditions just completely uncomfortable and not proper conditions for workplaces. Their motto has sort of been, we are workers, not robots, obviously, as robots have started to take the place of some of those workers. And it's not just Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez who's been hitting back at Amazon. Last week, Joe Biden, former vice president and a presidential candidate, blasted Amazon for paying a lower tax rate than firefighters. And again, Amazon hit back, saying that they pay $2.6 billion in corporate taxes and that they pay every penny they owe. And they've challenged actually both Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Joe Biden to then change the laws. They say, we follow the laws. It's up to you to change laws. If you don't think people are getting paid enough, you're the lawmakers. You can change it. But what I find really interesting out of all of these stories, Zane, is that Amazon is getting a lot more aggressive in the last year or so, pushing back against its critics and being very public about it. Zane. It certainly has, especially in that back and forth it had with AOC. Hadas Gold, thank you so much. I uh, appreciate that. Okay, let's turn from movers to media shakeups. Warner Media is reported to have won the bidding war for famed director J.J. Abrams. It's said to have signed an exclusive content deal with his company, Bad Robot, uh, the outfit behind the hits such as Westworld and Lost. This deal is said to be worth 
$500 million. Warner Media, by the way, is the parent company of CNN. Brian Stelter joins us live now. Uh, so, Brian, this is an eye-watering sum of money. What does Warner Media get in exchange for $500 million? It gets an exclusive first look at all the ideas that J.J. Abrams has uh, for TV shows and films and other sorts of uh, entertainment properties in the future. Uh, Bad Robot, uh, what you get is you get J.J. Abrams, you get his wife, Katie McGrath, uh, who is a key part of the company. You get this production company that's actually been associated with Warner Brothers for many years. Uh, when this deal was coming up, there was a bidding war with uh, many different companies interested in getting J.J. Abrams and Bad Robot to come over to them. Apple was reportedly uh, the top contender other than Warner Media uh, to get the bad robot business. Uh, Apple actually has some shows in the works from JJ Abrams because right now he's able to go out and offer shows to many different outlets. But Warner Media, which as you mentioned is CNN's parent, uh, it won this bidding war by offering an incredible sum of money in order to keep him in the family, keep him in the fold when Warner Media is about to launch this new streaming service. What we are seeing is an incredible expression of the streaming wars where if you are an A-list star, uh, an A-list producer behind the scenes. You can command these nine-figure sums of money in exchange to partner with one of these big studios and give them a first look at your shows. So that's what Warner Media is getting with J.J. Abrams. It's something that'll last for many years, but we'll have to see. Everyone will end up seeing in the future if Abrams and McGrath and the production company are able to deliver huge hits uh, for the new streaming service. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, when somebody gives you $500 million, that does come with so much pressure. But <laughs> Pressure. <laughs> although I wouldn't say no to that. But um, so, so what does it say about the power of just really good original content in an, in an age when the television, movie, entertainment landscape is becoming increasingly competitive, Ryan? Yeah, we've seen similar deals with Shonda Rhimes and Netflix, Ryan Murphy and Netflix. Greg Berlanti staying put at Warner. There have been these deals that have been worth 200 and 300 million dollars. And now uh, the Hollywood trades are saying this is setting a new high watermark at 500 million. Uh, to, to be clear, it's not one big 500 million dollar check. You know what, what the deals are is it's a valuation of a, a long-term contract for the production company. But <clears throat> it is still an incredible sum of money. Hollywood has not seen this before, and it is all driven by Netflix. Netflix has been causing these bidding wars, and now it's Apple and Amazon as well. All of these companies desperate for A-list talent. Because look, we live in this, this long tail world where everybody watches whatever they want on YouTube and Netflix and elsewhere, but it is still hits, and it's still hit makers that have a lot of power. Because those shows can put your streaming service or put your product on the map. That's what Disney's banking on, it's what Warner's banking on. It's what's worked for Netflix now for many years. You need a combination of those A-list uh, stars and producers who can make the big hits. But then you also need a library of other stuff for everybody to watch. It's a balancing right. act for all these companies. And Warner Media is, of course, launching its streaming service toward the end of this year and then in fully fledged form early next year. It's got a few more months to make that plan. Well, let's see if that $500 million pays off. Brian Stelter, right. live for us. Thanks. Thank you so much. Appreciate that. Up next, takeoff for Airbus. Boeing's woes give its European rival a head start at the Paris Air Show. That's next. Welcome back to First Move. We are live for you here at the New York Stock Exchange, taking another quick check of the markets. Let's see. We've got about 10 minutes to open. Uh, futures pointing to a solidly higher open there. You can see Dow futures up about half percent, as I mentioned, nine or so minutes to go until the opening bell. Uh, new hopes. 
for global economic stimulus. That is what is driving markets right now. Uh, the U.S. Federal Reserve meets today to discuss interest rates in Washington amid expectations for a future, a future rate cut. We're going to discuss that with my next guest. And all of this, you see the Dow, S&P 500 and the Nasdaq all in, all in green and European markets also uh, in green territory as well. All of this comes as the ECB head, Mario Draghi, opened the door today to new Eurozone stimulus. New numbers out today show that German investor confidence plunging deep into negative territory. It's further evidence on how global trade uncertainty is hurting business sentiment. Amid all of this talk of new stimulus, bond yields are falling in Europe and the United States as well. German yields are hitting record lows and the U.S. 10-year is tumbling more than 2%. Joining me now to talk about all of this, Lisa Chalet. Welcome. Uh, she is the Chief Investment Officer at Morgan Stanley Wealth Management. Lisa, thank you so much for being with us. So let's talk about Morning Day. Mario Draghi's comments, the ECB head, because he made comments indicating, intimating that essentially uh, he'd be open to stimulus measures if the Eurozone economy doesn't go the way it's expected to or he hopes it to. Yes. That's having an impact on European markets. Just how much, how much of a lever does he have in terms of monetary policy to revitalize Europe's economy? So, look, I, I don't think his comments are going to revitalize the economy right now, but I think his comments can certainly hearten markets. Uh, I think the question on the economy will, will come down to whether or not global trade rebounds, to what extent uh, China growth rebounds. Uh, well, one of the things we've learned this cycle is the extent to which Europe has really become highly, highly dependent on global trade, mm -hmm. um, with China being a huge piece of that and certainly a, a huge piece for Germany. And I think that's what we're seeing with this zoo index today. And um, we saw Donald Trump actually reacting uh, quite angrily to Mario Draghi's comments. He feels it sort of gives Europe unfair trade advantages. Uh, yeah, look, I, you know, that's all politics and that's mm -hmm. always going to be all politics. Just bringing it to markets, um, the implication of Draghi's comments today are really going to be felt not only in the rates markets, but in the currency markets. Mm -hmm. So we're seeing the euro weaken right, relative the euro to weekend. the dollar as people, you know, um, and investors intimate uh, that, in fact, uh, you know, rates could be cut or, or real rates could be pushed even lower mm -hmm. um, in Europe. It raises the pressure uh, on uh, Chairman Powell today, obviously. Yes, yes. Uh, and, and folks anticipating what his comments may ultimately be at the end of the meeting tomorrow regarding U.S. Right, policy. Right, so where do you think uh, U.S. rates will go in terms of the Federal Reserve's decisions? I mean, obviously, yeah, you mentioned their meeting. Do you think there'll be a rate cut this time, next time? What do you think? Uh, yeah, so um, our current thinking is that it's going to be very, very hard um, you know, to the extent that the Fed wants to be um, loyal to their mandate um, which is price stability and, and um, you know, stable employment, full employment, um, to really make the justification for a rate cut um, tomorrow. That having been said, if we embrace their broader mandate, which is financial stability, the markets are, have, are now discounting a near 100 percent. The markets are discounting a 100 percent probability uh, of a July rate cut. Um, and if he disappoints in his commentary and in his rhetoric and the dovishness, um, you know, that could mark, um, you know, some volatility for U.S. markets to the downside. But what does his thinking depend on? I mean, obviously, he's going to be taking into account some of the weak sort of economic data that we've gotten recently, including uh, manufacturing, durable goods, retail sales. All of that goes into Jerome Powell's thinking, right? Yes. No, it absolutely does. And I think, you know, he's got to look at 
the incoming data and the extent to which it's weakening. Um, and we are starting to see it fall off. Um, you know, one of the things that we look at at Morgan Stanley is we have a proprietary business conditioned index, and that has actually fallen uh, in this last month to its lowest level since December of 2008. So that's an important date, right, right. Uh, and that's um, you know significant uh, to us, and and we think that it foreshadows uh, more weakness in the ISM manufacturing data, and so into Q3, you know. Um, Powell may have a little bit more ammunition to talk about a slowing economy, but even still, it's going to be very hard, um, you know, for him to rationalize cutting rates here without it seeming like he's being pressured by either the markets themselves right, right, right. or uh, the White House. Um, and all of this obviously comes at a time where the trade issues with China are certainly not going away. That, that obviously has the factor. That's probably a big part of the thinking, too. Oh, absolutely. And, and look, this is a huge handicap for the Fed. Um, and, you know, I think people need to feel for that um, because our, our trade policy, you know, has come fast and furious. It hasn't always been predictable. It hasn't necessarily, um, you know, played to a, a, a clearly telegraphed playbook. Um, and so the Fed is dealing with, you know, a variable that has jumped around. And, and I, I think that that is one of the things um, that they probably are considering that would, um, you know, it, be included in their argument to cut. Right. Right. Uh, Lisa Shelley, first. Thank you so much. Appreciate you being on the show. Great to chat with you. Of course. All right. Stay, uh, stay with us here on First Move. The market open is coming up in about four minutes or so from now. See you soon. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.